Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. And all of God's people say, Amen. Um, Out of great love for you this morning, at the close of our worship service, I'm going to ask Mike to please head towards the narthex, and Ben Muma will be at this door. Uh, Due to uh, a flu bug, Jesus and I will quarantine ourselves together in my office right after the service. So, but that is out of love for you. I'm going to ask you to now please open your Bible or one of the few Bibles to John chapter 2, where the subject is the glory of Christ as displayed in, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, it's breathtaking to me and perhaps breathtaking to you the way the Apostle John opens the gospel by placing the arrival of Jesus in the context of the beginning of creation. This is where we were last Sunday with Pastor Bread in the pulpit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In recalling the beginning of creation, John takes us now to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry is going to be the beginning of a new creation. With the arrival of Jesus, there will come to pass all things new. In our verses this morning, there will be new wine. Later in this chapter, a new temple. Then in following chapters, new birth and a new way to worship. The indicators are all building from the first chapter of this glorious gospel. Now placed in the context of the old creation, Jesus is responsible for the creation of the world. And placed in the light of the light of the sun shining at creation, Jesus is now the new light, the light that is bringing salvation into this world. And yet the world was made by Him, through Him, and for Him, yet the world did not know Him. Now the Maker is coming and He is visiting His own planet. It's remarkable that this eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So just as you go back to Genesis 1 with the beginning of creation, and the creation of Adam made in the image of God, now we see Jesus coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve come together as man and wife. Now in John chapter 2, a wedding feast is coming together. It's a story with human interest. There's a crisis in catering arrangements, according to this story. All kinds of things can happen in weddings. I've been to a few weddings when something goes off script, and it's okay for most people tend to adjust and we remain resilient. Yet this I know, I haven't seen this. I've never seen water turned into wine. This is about true joy at the wedding feast. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars. There were for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again ask that you would come and bless us as we study your word together. We are a needy, needy people. And out of your word, help us to find the rich treasures of your glory to sustain us. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, as you think of weddings today and consider weddings back in the time of Jesus, they are meant to be times of joy and rejoicing. They are meant to be the uniting of two individuals as one, body and soul. They are meant to portray a joyful journey in union with Christ, representing the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. Necessary to true joy at the wedding feast, our text takes uh, takes us beyond human relationship into our living, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. For Jesus will later say in John chapter 15, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants His joy to be in us and for our joy to be made full. This is so similar to our vision that our world may know the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. Love is at the center of our faith. Love is at the center of our life together. And love is at the center of what it means to have joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And in that feeling, the privilege for every believer is that we would have true joy. Now, if we're lacking in the fullness of joy department, whether we are singled or married, we might benefit by meditating on Jesus' first miracle here where He turned about 150 gallons of water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's an interesting story. There is no mention of the names of the groom. There's no mention of the names of the bride or their families. It's fascinating that there's no mention of how the wedding party or the guests responded to the miracle or even that they knew about it. It tells us here that the servants knew, but no one else actually knew other than the disciples themselves. John doesn't even tell us how the miracle was done. It was very low-key. In fact, as John reports, Jesus didn't even touch the water pots. So the focus here in this account is not on the spectacular part of the miracle. Rather, the focus is on Jesus Christ and His glory. For those who have eyes to see knew what He had done and believed in Him. John calls this a sign. It's the first of a number of signs in the Gospel of John. 
For it points to something beyond itself, namely to Jesus and what He came to do to save His people from their sin. It was an actual historical event. If you would have been there, you would have tasted the new wine and you would have been very blessed by the flavor of the wine. It must have been superb. And yet for us to understand joy at a wedding and how important wine was for Jewish customary weddings, we really need to study this from the Scripture. For turning water into wine, for true joy at the wedding feast, we see that this is often a symbol of the future Messianic kingdom. Rabbis would actually say, there is no rejoicing save the wine. Now this is cited by Leanne Morris in his Gospel according to John. But he adds the note that this did not mean that there was any permission for overindulgence, which was strongly condemned. So as we think about wine here, as central to the story, please follow your conscience. Do not allow wine to be a stumbling block to your brother or sister or to be an element of abuse. But in the Bible, and again, this is important to understand what this is telling us here in this Word. Wine is associated with joy and gladness. We see this in the Psalms and in the book of Judges. Isaiah 25 promises, On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. There are promises throughout the Old Testament of the feast that we will enjoy, full of grain and vats that shall overflow with wine and with oil. Now the meaning behind all this is again the fullness of joy that one would expect to have at the wedding feast of the Lamb of God. Which also points us to the future marriage supper of the Lamb that John writes about in Revelation 19 where we'll all be fully adorned as the bride of Christ. So we sum up the significance of this miracle in this way. Jesus' first miraculous sign should cause us to see His glory and the beauty of the joyous salvation that He brings to us, to all of us who believe in Him. There is true joy at the wedding feast with Jesus at the center. It begins here, though, if you'll note, with the believing mother. The situation is Jesus and His mother and His disciples, they attend a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Cana was probably eight or nine miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. We don't know the social connection, but apparently Mary and Jesus knew the family. The Apostle John never uses Mary's name, but refers to her as the mother of Jesus. The disciples at this point would probably be just five of the disciples that came to Jesus in the first chapter of John. John doesn't mention the twelve until John chapter six. But Mary knew that to run out of wine at a wedding party, it was a major social blunder. She knew that it would have been very embarrassing. For in the strict culture of the Jewish community, this social mishap would have been hard to live down. Jewish weddings were a really big deal. There were several stages, and we've heard of some of them as we've gone through Advent. First, there was betrothal that took place typically a year before the wedding celebration. This would not have been broken except by divorce. The second phase was the procession 
where the groom and his friends would go to the bride's house and joyously lead her and her friends back to their house. And then the third stage is what we see here. It's the wonderful celebration. It was a great uh, celebration of perhaps a week long that included wine and food and much celebration. Now, please keep in mind that Mary knew that the angel had spoken to her about Jesus' birth. Announcing that he would be the Son of the Most High and would reign on the throne of David forever. She knew that she had conceived him while she was still a virgin. She remembered the prophecies of Simeon and Anna over the baby Jesus, rejoicing in Christ as the light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. She treasured in her heart the incident with Jesus in the temple when she was twelve. All of this she remembered as people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus. This is Mary, the believing mother of Jesus. So when their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they simply have no wine. And it seems likely that she was hoping for something miraculous. And yet we marvel at the humility of Jesus. Here is God the Son. He is God among us. He is God in the flesh. You don't expect Him to be just milling around with other guests, but that apparently is what He is doing. The couple is not mentioned. Jesus condescends to the obscure. And the mother of Jesus is there. She is a key person, perhaps even has something to do with the wedding planner. She was aware of the need. She arose quite simply. And she says, the wine ran out. Now from this believing mother, we come to the obedient son. Jesus' reply strikes many as abrupt and rude. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the term woman in and of itself was not rude in the culture of the first century. Jesus used the same word to speak tenderly to Mary from the cross. So it was a term of respect, although it wasn't a customary way for a son to address his mother. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would be calling my mother in the afternoon and simply saying, woman, how are you doing? I just don't think that would happen. Now, you remember that John seems to have the opening chapters of Genesis in mind before him as he opens his gospel. He moved beyond Genesis chapters 1 and 2, has now turned the page, and he's in Genesis 3, and it seems that Jesus is there with him now as he deals with his mother. And so I ask the question, what's so significant about Genesis 3 and Jesus calling his mother woman? Well, there's a great redemptive story unfolding. The first gospel promise comes to us in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. Do you see what this means for Mary? She is that woman of promise from Genesis 3.15 and Jesus is that seed, that seed that has come into the world to crush the head of our enemy. Jesus is saying, I'm not just your son. I am the son. I am the son of promise. 
I am the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Now the next phrase here though in this verse is a Hebrew idiom. What to me and to you. I think the English translation is smoother. What does this have to do with me? Now in the Gospels on several occasions, the demons address Jesus with these very words. They meant they were meant to put some distance between two parties. What do you and I have in common so far as the matter at hand is concerned? Jesus is placing some distance between he and his mother because he's beginning to really understand that he has to follow the will of his father in heaven. He will be obedient to his call that is for the purpose that God has sent him to do. Why did he place this distance here? It's because my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His hour, dear family of God, in the Gospel of John, is the hour of His death when He will die for sinners and make purification for sins. We see this consistently in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. Then in John chapter 8, no one arrested Him because His hour, His time of death on the cross had not yet come. And yet as He entered into Jerusalem in the triumphant procession, He realizes what was about to occur. So He says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then finally, as He's getting closer to the time of His death, Jesus proclaims, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Dear family, do you see what's happening here? Even even at this wedding feast with the Lamb of God, Jesus' hour was the hour of His death when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. This would be the ultimate purification as John has told us in 1 John. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now here in John 2, Jesus denies Mary's request, but then He fulfills it on His own terms. More discreetly and behind the scenes to the point in his own ministry that it is now beginning to really unfold. Mary must have taken some hope for his answer because he tells his servants, whatever he says, you do. You know, that's not advice, bad advice for any situation where whatever Jesus tells you to do, simply go and do it. This is important on this Sanctity of Life Sunday as we affirm the Sanctity of Life For all human life, from conception in the womb to the moment that God calls us home, we value, we respect, we fight with God's grace and power for the dignity of life. And we know the great love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ whenever we fall short. But notice Mary's example toward the obedient son, obedient to the Father. Mary knew to flee to Jesus. This is what she did. When the problem arose, Mary took it to the Lord. This is exactly what we need to do, dear family of God. And Mary knew to follow His commands and told others to do so as well. This is the only command ever issued by Mary in the Bible, I believe. 
is excellent advice. Just do as Jesus says. When problems arise, when troubles toss our lives, the best thing we can do is simply to flee to Jesus and then do as Jesus calls us to do. So what does He call us to do? Come unto Me, all you who are laden, and I will give you rest. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast all your anxieties upon Me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. For Jesus is calling us to trust Him and to know that He is the way to the Father. And this leads us to our final point, which is the glorious Lord. Jesus tells the serpents to do something with these purification jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. You hear that? They filmed, they filled these jars up to the brim. They were not <laughs> used for drinking. They were used for bathing, for purifying. Jesus is pointing to something very new about what my hour will be like. I will take the purification rituals of Israel, Jesus is saying, and replace them with a decisively new way of purification, namely, with My blood. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. For My flesh is true food and My blood is true drink. This is the glory of Christ in giving us this sign. It's acted out as a parable of how His own death, His own blood, His hour will be final, decisive, the ultimate purification for sins. Then, dear family, there is no ritual anymore for cleansing. There is one way to be clean before God. John says it plainly in Revelation chapter 7. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The glory of Jesus is that He alone, once and for all, will be making purification for sins through His blood. You don't turn to ritual. You turn to Jesus. And listen to the comment of the Master of the Feast. Are you ready? Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And what does that say? Well, it says something wonderful, dear family. That everything that Jesus does is the very best. All that was wine at the wedding ceremony. That's all it was. But it points to something far greater. Some of you are saying, so what if the wine ran out of wine? Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe that's where you are. But don't stay there because you'll miss the point of the Scripture this morning. Move beyond that. See the beauty and blessedness that with Christ and what He does time and time again, it is the very best for you and for me. The salvation He gives is the very best. The garments of righteousness which He gives to us to wear are the very best. It's astonishing. Maybe you have a problem with the extravagance of 180 gallons of wine. You know, that was a lot of wine. Much more than what we need here in this room. But do you see the point? The sheer extravagance of what 
Christ Jesus has done for us. That's what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have your sins forgiven and to have peace with the Lord. That's true joy at the wedding feast. You're experiencing the extravagance that Jesus bestows. And if you're lacking in the joy department this morning, ponder the glory of Christ. For perhaps one reason that Jesus is acting so strangely and abruptly is that He knows how this joy will come to us. The only way this joy will come to us is through His hour. At the wedding feast, people are singing and laughing, sipping the wine, joyful celebration as it's intended to be. The only way, though, that we drink the cup of His joy is that Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath. Jesus knew it. He is sitting there as they are sipping the joy. He is sipping the reality of what He would do through His sorrow. He would make the wine through the purification jars. This is the only way His blood would purify. Wine and blood poured out at the cross for the forgiveness of sin that we might have joyful life to the brim, to the full. He's calling the only way to enter into My joy is through My blood. My blood must cleanse you. And what will you say in response? By His grace and love, He is worth pursuing knowing His invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb where you, beloved church, are dearly accepted. You are the dearly loved and adored, the beautiful bride of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, as we begin to just scratch the surface of this beautiful story, praising and singing hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray that we might see none but Jesus only. Bless this to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.